Today we conclude our series on 1 John chapter 1 by studying the first two verses of chapter 2. And I know I've been calling this a study of chapter 1, and so by going into chapter 2, I hope nobody gets upset or loses their faith or something. Uh, It may help you to know that this was the plan all along because the thought unit that John begins in chapter 1, verse 1, ends with chapter 2, verse 2. And you may be saying, well, then why didn't John just keep it all in one chapter? And the answer is that when John wrote this letter, he didn't separate it into chapters and verses. Everything that we refer to by way of chapters and verses, these were added over a thousand years after John wrote his letter. God inspired John to write God's word without error. But the guy who ended chapter 1 with verse 10 made a mistake. So today we continue our study in John's God-inspired words with what he writes in the first two verses of chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's break this down into phrases. So that the first phrase we study is, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. When John says, I write this, he is summarizing. He is referring back to what he already wrote. And John is summarizing everything he's written about knowing that you know God. To help me know that I know God, in the first ten verses, John highlights the signs of those who know God. The first sign that lets me know that I know God is that I follow the real biblical Jesus and not some made-up version of my own. In the first two verses of this letter, John emphasizes that knowing God is only possible Only through the real biblical Jesus, the Jesus John saw and heard and touched. The next sign that lets me know that I know God is found in verse 3, and that is that I have fellowship with God. John says that I uh, know God if I have fellowship with God, where fellowship means that I share things in common Uh, with God. I share an address with God because he indwells me with his spirit. I share the same lifestyle as God because through his spirit I become more and more like Jesus in the way I love people, in the way I have uh, real acts of compassion and forgiveness and service flowing through my life. In fellowship, I share the same passions as God, like a passion for studying and applying His Word, uh, like a passion for the church, like a passion for being with God's people, supporting God's people, and giving generously as an act of worship in the church. 
And I have a same, the same passion that John has. That's a sign that I know God. Uh, John has a passion for proclaiming this good news. And a passion for telling others about Jesus is one way I know that I know God. Is if I have a passion that other people might know God. Another sign that lets me know that I know God is that I have joy. John says in verse 4 that I know that I know God when my joy is coming to completeness. Knowing God is a joyful experience um, because it brings benefits that I cannot lose in my life. I have acceptance and a strength and the experience of God's love that gives me peace right up to the moment of my physical death when I am safely gathered into God's arms for eternity. But there is one last sign that tells me that I know God. And this is the sign that John emphasizes in the first verse of chapter 2. I know that I know God when I shine with God's light. John says that God is light, which means that God is morally pure, perfect, and without sin. And I know that I know God if I'm serious about avoiding wrong in my life and agreeing with God about my sin. That's what confession is. It's when I openly agree with God that my sin is present, that my sin is mine, that my sin is toxic, and that I must be clean through his forgiveness. This is what John summarizes when he says, I write this that you will not sin. Which leads to the next phrase in verse 1. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. John writes to encourage Christ followers not to sin. But he understands that he's writing to Christ followers who do sin. In fact, uh, last time we studied uh, verses 6, 8, and 10 of chapter 1, where John goes into great detail to show me how important it is for me to see my sin that I ignore because of my self-deception, and I admit my sins that keep that I keep locked up in a closet, I need to bring them out into the light uh, with true confession to God. And John says that when I do this, when I confess my sins, I am completely forgiven by God. That leads to a question. What happens to my sins? Uh, does God just wave his hand and say, nah, no problem, it's, uh, it really didn't matter anyway? Uh, what happens to my sins? Uh, does God just wink and say, eh, better luck next time? What happens to my sin? Do they just disappear? No. God is light. And my sin does not just disappear with a wave or a wink. To show me this, in a few well-chosen words, John draws back the curtain so that I get a glimpse of the spiritual world and how seriously God approaches the forgiving of each and every one of my sins. And when John draws back that curtain, what I see is a courtroom. This courtroom scene is implied by John's word for advocate in verse 1. 
The Greek word translated advocate is the Greek word parakletos. And in the ancient world, a paraclete was a, a legal term for the one who defended a person in court. Specifically, the paraclete was the one who spoke. Keep that in mind. The paraclete was the one who spoke to the judge on behalf of the accused. The paraclete speaks. So what happens to my sin? How does God forgive my sin? John pulls back the curtain to reveal a courtroom where I stand accused and guilty before a perfect God of light. But when all seems lost and I'm about to be condemned to separation from God, someone stands up. It is Jesus, the righteous one. He's perfect, just like the judge. And when Jesus rises, the spiritual world falls silent. And then shattering the silence, Jesus speaks in my defense. Jesus speaks, the judge agrees, and I'm completely forgiven. Jesus speaks, and I walk away a free man. What does Jesus say? <laughs> well, I'll get to that in just a moment. But first, remember that John is talking figuratively here. Uh, he isn't saying that God is literally a judge who wears robes and hammers a gavel. And he's certainly not saying that the Father wants to condemn us and Jesus holds him back. Uh, and tries to talk him out of it. Now, salvation is from the Father. Uh, a, the plan of salvation comes from the Father's love for you and me. So this courtroom image is figurative. But the figurative language reflects a real spiritual truth that God does not wink or wave when it comes to my sin. The process goes much deeper than that. The courtroom scene is now completed in the next phrase in verse 2 of chapter 2 where John writes, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In these words, John explains that Jesus is a very unusual defense attorney. Jesus is a defense attorney who starts by declaring that his client is absolutely guilty. Guilty as sin but then who takes on the punishment that his client deserves. The punishment is the death sentence. And this is the penalty that Jesus takes as the atoning sacrifice for my sin. The English words atoning sacrifice is a translation of one Greek word that explains what Jesus did on the cross. He didn't just die. Jesus went to the cross in my place as a substitution for me. On the cross, Jesus took my punishment to pay the debt that had to be paid in order for me to have a relationship with God. Now I can answer that question about what Jesus says. What does Jesus say as my advocate? What does Jesus say in my defense? Well, let's start with what Jesus does not say. Uh, as my advocate, Jesus does not plead for mercy on my behalf. You know, these words we're studying today, I have been familiar with these words uh, for many, many years. And for a long time, I misunderstood the message. 
there was a time when I pictured the courtroom drama like this. My sin file comes before the judge and God says, that's it, Steve is condemned. But then Jesus stands up and says, no, 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 Father, please have mercy on him. Uh, give Steve another chance. Uh, I think he's getting better over time. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, just as a favor to me, uh, have mercy on him for my sake. And then I pictured God saying, oh, all right, Jesus, uh, considering all that you've done, I'll, I'll forgive him. But this behavior has to come to a stop. You see what I was doing? I was picturing Jesus as pleading my case by asking God to have mercy on me. And this was not a very comforting picture because I sin all the time. And so I pictured Jesus having to come back a few seconds later uh, to defend me again. And the father saying, Steve did it again, didn't he? And Jesus saying, yeah, he did it again. But please have mercy on him because he's working on it. And then a few seconds later, Jesus says, uh, yeah, he did it again. Uh, but have mercy on him. Give him another chance. And over time, I just pictured Jesus rolling his eyes as my sin file just grew thicker and thicker. And he had to come into the courtroom again and again. I pictured Jesus' defense getting weaker and weaker. Well, Father, Steve had a lot of sugar. You know how that uh, really fogs up his mind. And I pictured Jesus' case growing weaker and weaker. And uh, the Father growing more and uh, less and less patient. And the, his patience going thinner and thinner until finally uh, the Father says, Jesus. I love you and all, but let's face it, Steve's a loser. Uh, he keeps doing the same thing over and over again. No more chances, no more mercy. I've had it with him. He's condemned, period. And that's the way I pictured it. And this scenario made me feel really insecure. If my forgiveness is a plea for mercy and a promise of good behavior, I was sunk because I knew my heart. But then I read more carefully what John teaches here in 1 John, and I realized that I had my picture of the courtroom all wrong. I realized that when Jesus pleads my case before the Father, Jesus does not plead for mercy. He appeals to justice. This is what John means when he says in verse 2 that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for my sin. From the moment I first put belief in Jesus' work on the cross, from that moment my sins are paid by Jesus' suffering on that cross. So that every time my file comes into that courtroom, Jesus stands up and this is what Jesus says. He says, Father, here are the nail scars in my hands and my feet. Steve is guilty. But I have paid for his sins. And since I already took the punishment, justice demands that you forgive Steve. Father, you are just. And it would be unjust for you to uh, punish Steve's sin twice. I took the penalty. So Steve must go free. And if you understand this, uh, 
then you understand verse 9 of chapter 1. You know, there's a word in verse 9 of First John chapter 1 that seems out of place. There's a word that doesn't seem to make any sense. The verse reads, First John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that word doesn't seem to make sense. The word is just. We would expect that John would say, uh, God is faithful and merciful and will forgive our sins. But no, John says that God's forgiveness comes from God's justice. And now you know why. If you belong to Jesus... If Jesus knows you, then Jesus is your paraclete who stands in your defense by pointing to his nail scars and securing your forgiveness based on his appeal to justice and not mercy. You may be saying, okay, all right, I get it, but I don't understand why this makes any difference. It makes a huge difference in your life. Understanding this truth uh, will change your life. Let me tell you some ways that my life changes when I understand Jesus' atoning sacrifice. The first way my life changes is that I become free from works righteousness. I used to picture Jesus pleading for mercy on me on the promise that I'll do better. Uh, under this false impression, uh, I was still a slave to works and trying to earn God's love with my good performance. But when I understand that Jesus' atoning sacrifice uh, satisfies justice, then I understand that I am free from trying to perform for God. Obviously, everything I said earlier still applies. Uh, the person who truly knows God uh, will avoid uh, things that are dark and avoid sin in his or her life. But there is such freedom knowing that my forgiveness is not based on my performance. My forgiveness is based on who I am to God, not what I do for God. And that's why the title of this message is Knowing God Knows You. In the end, the most important part of knowing that I know God is the part where I know that God knows me. When I know that God knows me as his child, that's all I really need to know. When I know that I am God's child, I know that I am covered by Jesus' sacrifice and my forgiveness is based on who I am to God and not what I do or I don't do along the way. Now, if you are not sure that God knows you as his child, if you are not sure that your name is written in the book of life that's mentioned in the book of Revelation, uh, you must turn to Jesus with faith in what he did on the cross today. And when you do, you will have God's love and you will be free from trying to earn God's love through good works. The next way that my life changes is that I become free from guilt and shame. 
when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, their guilt led them to hide from God and from each other. Uh, you'll remember that uh, they suddenly became ashamed of their nakedness and they hid the, themselves from each other with uh, coverings. Uh, but when I understand Jesus' atoning sacrifice, I understand that he has set me free from guilt and shame, set me free to be genuine, to be authentic, to be honest about my faults and my failings and my scabs and my scars. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to be a fake. I am totally accepted by God. I'm forgiven and I can be free to be the best me that I can be with God's power. The next way that my life changes when I understand Jesus' atoning sacrifice for me is that I become free from the fear of death. Quite a few years ago, I was on a flight uh, returning to LaGuardia uh, during a uh, really windy, stormy scene of a night. And it had been a successful flight. Uh, successful in that uh, the guy next to me uh, just about slept through the whole flight. And so I took his bag of peanuts, uh, his bag of, uh, actually there were pretzels, I believe, and uh, he never missed it. And uh, the attendant was collecting the uh, soda cups, and the pilot was announcing that we were about to land. And then suddenly several things happened at once uh, that made me sure that uh, we were going to crash. Uh, the weather grew really severe. Uh, the engine became uh, uh, just shaking. I could see it out the window and making lots of strange noises. Uh, the attendants uh, looked really worried. There were some dramatic dips in, uh, in altitude. Passengers began to panic. And I was convinced that the plane was going to crash. And my first reaction was real fear. I thought, I'm not ready to die. I, I don't want to die. Um, and then I thought about standing in front of God, this holy God, this perfect God. And I said, I'm not ready to see God. Um, and I, as I thought of standing before God, I began to uh, feel this overwhelming guilt. I felt guilty about my inconsistent prayer life. I felt guilty about my losing battle with selfishness. I felt really guilty about those extra pretzels that I uh, took. And I was afraid to die. And there was nothing I could do to eliminate that fear. Psychologists say that, you know, to combat this kind of fear, what you need to do is uh, use some techniques like uh, calmly tell yourself that you're overreacting or uh, try to distract yourself by thinking about something else. And I can tell you that when the engine is screaming and the turbulence is shaking suitcases out of the overhead bin and the guy next to you is noticing that he doesn't have his bag of pretzels, uh, I can tell you that uh, these techniques do not work. Uh, then I found myself thinking about the truths behind this scripture that we're studying today. I thought of me standing before God and Jesus rising and saying, Father, I know this one. I paid his debt with my own blood. And I remembered how that forgiveness was based on who I am to God and through my faith in Jesus, not what I do. And knowing that God knows me took away my fear of dying in that moment. When nothing else could, no other technique, understanding Christ's atoning sacrifice 
gave me the power over fear, even the fear of death itself. This power over fear, the fear of death, also comes with an empowerment for life. And these are all yours. These powers are all yours when you know that you know God. Because you know that God knows you. Let's uh, talk to God now. You know, maybe uh, you realize that, uh, that if you were to stand before God today, that God wouldn't know you. And so this is your opportunity right now to fix that. There's uh, one issue that you need to settle, and that is uh, your forgiveness. And that forgiveness comes uh, only, only from God through Jesus and a faith in what he did on the cross for you. And so would you do that now? Maybe you are a follower of Jesus, and now you need, you need a reconfirmation uh, that God knows you in a personal way. Not because of who you are, but because of what Jesus has done for you as you put your faith in him. Would you, just as we take this bread and take this cup, use this time to, uh, to come to God again and ask for that reassurance that comes as you know that you know that God knows you.